Welcome back to the podcast, my friends. This is episode 65. Now, uh, this was really fun. I enjoyed this so much. David Kinneman is the president of Barna Group, the sort of uh, major church research organization. Uh, David has uh, dedicated his career to helping the church understand their role in the given cultural climate, what's going on around them, and using that as a means to help the church move forward. So there's a bunch of different things in here. If you're like, oh, it's just for church leaders, that's that's not the case. There definitely are useful insights here for church leaders, but essentially anybody who professes faith in Jesus and is interested in how that fits into the culture today, you will find something interesting in here for you. David shared a bunch of research, some of which is included in uh, his recent book with Mark Matlock, Faith for Exiles, and I think you're going to enjoy this. Let's get right to it. I wondered uh, if you could tell us before we get into the book, which you know I, I really enjoyed, uh, and we'll talk plenty about that. But I, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your own journey, uh, how you came to an interest in in research, how you came to Barna, that even a little bit on the transition, because I mean I think. I don't know how this is for you, but for many people that I talk to, it's still kind of like George Barna, George Barna, but um, that's a long time. You know, mm-hmm. there's been already some years here. So yeah. uh, I would love to hear a bit of your journey in there, how that's played out. And then and then I'd love to dig into the book. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for asking about some of the backstory. Um, I, um, I actually figured I'd be a pastor. My dad is a lifelong pastor of a church in, in uh, Arizona. And um, so I thought I would follow in, the, in those sort of ministry footsteps, and, and I have, just not in a local church context. <clears throat> um, and so I read one of the books by George Barna uh, when I was a student at, at university uh, school in L.A. area called Biola, and I read one of the books uh, from George called User-Friendly Churches, which is a book that sort of tells its age, I think. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it was an interesting book, this sort of research-based approach to try to understanding best practices for local churches and uh, sort of the nerd side of my brain. Uh, you've heard of the lizards, lizard side brain, yeah. the side of my brain, but this is the nerd side of the brain was sort of awakened to the idea that, you know, I could, I could do research for, uh, you know, for a ministry career. And so I became an intern. Uh, that was back in 95. It was actually um, February 14th. I just remember that because um, I, I think I drove up to the office to start my internship and then drove back down and had a date with my, my then uh, fiance. Um, <laughs> And so um, it was a rain, rainy day in Southern California, and I went to a birth like a it was like uh, one of the Barnas had a, had a birthday that day or one of their kids. <clears throat> so I kind of it was a small little family business really, um, even though I had this um, sort of large reputation. So it was really fun to sort of get into the into the business and into the family, and then um, <clears throat> worked here for a long time running the field center, our telephone calls. Uh, just learning the business of research and and the ins and outs of, of you know working with clients and partners and there's probably not a ministry well there I'm sure ministries we haven't worked with but from a we've worked with hundreds and hundreds of ministries and organizations and parachurch organizations and church leaders through through 20 what's now 25 years <clears throat> just about uh, February 14th next year will be 25 years so um, wonderful I ended up taking on the business uh, from from George I bought the business from him it's a for profit company. And um, but a ministry driven one. And um, I took the business off from him in, in uh, October of 2009. Uh, and so it's been about just about 10 years. And um, yeah, it's a it's an amazing company in that we get a chance to use research as a lens on what's happening in culture and then using that as a, a means of trying to help the church make sense of its times and its its way forward. Absolutely. Well, congratulations for 25 and for 10 years. That's that's excellent. Yeah, it feels like a bunch of milestones have been coming up um, in that regard, and uh, it's been fun to celebrate them and to look back on all of God's goodness. Because you know, when I started, I sort of figured, oh, well, I'll stick around for I don't, I don't know, when you are 22, 21 years old, you know, I'll stick around for um, a couple years. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Just a couple months, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I felt like I was going to get get let go within the first couple couple months. Uh, for just mistakes that I made they, in, in retrospect, they weren't, they weren't really that big of a deal. Uh, but if, but, you know, being very conscientious about a, a, a new job and if, like, you know, feeling like this, I've got to support a new, you know, a new family of my wife and everything. Uh, 
uh, I felt super conscientious about all that, but, um, um, you know, it's, it's funny. There's one person, one other person has been working here just a little longer than I have about 26 years. And, uh, <clears throat> she was my sort of indirect supervisor when I first started. Her name was Pam. And we joke, she was just here in the office just a second ago before we started this podcast. And, uh, and, and, uh, we joke about the fact that her one chance to get me fired was back then. <laughs> <laughs> she missed, she it. missed her. Chance. Yeah. Now I'm her, I'm her boss. So <laughs> I, I get that. I, I, I started work at the church that I was attending in Toronto immediately after high school, and I had no idea really where I wanted to go. And so I left kind of university over there, and I started cleaning toilets and running kids' camps. And by the time I left 14 years later, I was you know director of four different departments and all kinds of stuff. I'm like, how did this happen? <laughs> I know you blink and sometimes uh, years and years go by. So yeah, she had her one chance to escape her fate, and uh, and so did, so did I apparently. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because I mean, there's there are days when I daydream about working in for a local church, um, and then I'm reminded by usually by my father like that is not an easier path than the one you're on. Um, <clears throat> and I love I love what local churches are doing with the fact that I also understand a lot about their limitations and brokenness and challenges and the fact that we're you know, we need new models of ministry and new approaches. And so like with all of its functions and dysfunctions, um, I love serving into churches and Christian communities and, you know, with, with all their best and all their worst to offer. Um, and, and, you know, I think we're trying, we're trying to constantly help people, you know, make their way to be just honest about, you know, what's really happening in our lives and in our, in our hearts and in our cultures and in our societies and in our churches. So it's, um, it's a lot of fun. Um, but it's, but it's, it's a. It feels like a tall task many days. Yes, I can imagine that. Okay, so one of the things that I loved then right off the bat about what you're writing and doing right now, because you kind of alluded to it, is I've spent a good portion of my career working for churches and parachurch organizations, uh, often led by much older leaders, and I've spent a lot of time sitting in meetings hearing about, oh, the young people. Oh, the youth of today. Oh, decrying the moral decay of society, which for me has always felt utterly irrelevant because I'm like, this is my society. This is whatever. This is the world I'm growing up in. Mm. I'm not benchmarking against a time when everyone was supposedly a Christian. I never lived in that world. So I've spent years sort of feeling like, okay, I'm going to sit and suffer and smile through these meetings and then try and figure out what exactly am I to do here? Uh, is our organization even meeting young people? Because most of the ones I've spent with are not. They're sort of like Gen X up uh, is their main focus. And so as I as I dug into your book very quickly, you were kind of like, so all the rest of the books I've written are about the, the problems and let's talk about what's working. And yeah. and I think something about that is what affected me because I literally was drawn to tears by the end of the introduction. And then and then in your first major key as well, I was just like, oh. you know, when there's the stirring of the spirit and you're just kind of like, yes, there is something here that I need to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, so so maybe maybe to start. What's your passion? What's moving you? What, what What is the fire that's burning in, in your gut, David? Uh, and how did then we end up with this? Well, thanks for saying all that first. I mean, I just want to acknowledge the power of, you know, the words that we, you know, spend time working on a laptop somewhere, you know, some either coffee shop or late at night or between the other things that need to get done. <clears throat> and then, and then, you know, editing, publishing those, and, and then the power of, of a book to connect across those things, because that's really what happened for me when George wrote User Friendly Churches again. Even in, even in its even in its day, it was a a way of of thinking differently about um, the way we do church. I've been actually reading a book. Side note to a side note, but I, I was I've been reading a book called um, uh, Descartes' Bones, and it's about uh, Rene Descartes and. Uh, uh, the sort of it's subtitles a skeletal history of the conflict between faith and reason. Mm-hmm. And um, what's interesting about Descartes is that he, you know, his famous, uh, however you pronounce it, cogito, 
know, or whatever the um, I think therefore I am. He was proposing a very different way of understanding the world in which we live, which was that that through the power of reason, through rationality, um, you could you could observe your circumstances and then make different choices uh, on, on the basis of that. And, you know, he was so convinced that he could find, for example, the secret to longevity that he fully expected to live into his uh, into his like into his 200s and 300s that he actually he was actually a devout Catholic believer. And so he 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 thought that I, I can't remember if the exact connection was he saw these Old Testament, you know, like people who lived sure. into their hundreds and uh, he felt that he could do that. But but ironically enough, he died in a very cold S- Swedish winter and uh, in, in his mid 40s or like, you know, a very relatively young man. Uh, and he was very pissed about having to go to a very cold, cold environment. And, and he was sort of it was very. Uh, very crotchety at the very end of his days for good reason of catching a cold in a cold, in a cold, <laughs> cold climate. I've lived in the north. <laughs> Some of your listeners, I'm sure. I get that. I, I, <laughs> exactly. I, I've I've been to Sweden in the summer, but I lived in Finland for six years, so I've put my north northern winters in. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so um, what was interesting about Descartes was he he said there was this this in, in essence he felt like there was this mega shift in the way humans understood their reality and a lot of his the reason why he was sort of a patron saint of rationalism as a precursor to the modern era as a precursor to the enlightenment um is that he he thought that we could see the world differently and i actually in a in a, in a small 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 way uh believe that george barna through the power of like okay let's actually be honest with ourselves through the power of social research with where the church is and what is a user-friendly church again that that uh metaphor may not work. It doesn't have the same traction that it would have in the early days of, of, you know, user-friendly computers. But, um, but that same idea is, is driving me. Like, so I've written, you know, several projects, a book called I'm Christian, a book called you lost me, which drove, which at the heart of it was like, let's really just be honest about, you know, instead of how we feel the world thinks about us or what we think is the reasons that people walk away from faith. Let's just, let's just figure out what we can learn through, observing talking listening hearing uh those stories and you know i've had lots and lots of positive um response to that but also some negative response like you know how dare you ask non-christians what they think of the church how could they possibly know they're they're <laughs> the, the eyes of their mind are blinded by the dark spirits of the age i actually think that's probably true it's just that that's not a reason why we shouldn't ask and at least you know understand <laughs> you know what 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 is behind their ex- ex- expectations or perceptions. Um, and, you know, of course people will preach back to me, well, like, you know, perception isn't always reality. It's like, well, that's also true, but it's also true enough that how people perceive their spiritual journey or what it was that was the reason for their breakup with Christianity, uh, those should drive us. So, you know, that's really driven me for the better part of 12, 15 years to understand the spiritual journeys of the emerging generation. I'm 45 but just like you, I feel like I'm in a lot of rooms working with a lot of clients with a lot of churches, a lot of whatever who are, you know, mostly Gen X at the youngest and then and then um, boomers and elders and that there's a certain mentality about the way the world of church should work. So the last two, three, four years and ac- actually the thread for this project goes back to the very beginning when I started writing on Christian and you lost me where I really want to understand, well, what does work? What does connect for people? What are the reasons why people, um, you know, remain faithful despite all the reasons that we have to doubt that, you know, the metaphysical reality of a God who can listen to the prayers of 8 billion people and understands the hairs and knows the hairs and are like, how does that where and how and why, and what is like, how do we really understand all of that in an age of, of rationalism and science and technology? Um, you know, the, what are the metaphysical realities that undergird that? Um, so, you know, I've been really driven now by, you know, <clears throat> something, again, very small by comparison to Descartes. But what is this, this sort of difference in the way that <clears throat> God is working in and among his people that might be a, a, a real seminal shift, a real difference in the way we think about, talk about, understand our relationship with God? Again, the God, I don't believe the gospel changes or God's nature changes. Uh, but we're living in a period of time when when a lot of things are being rethought and re-understood and re re-believed. And uh, that drives me. It's like, okay, what would what would the church could the church look like in the next hundred years? And what are the things that might make a difference? And so um, 
those are some of the things that I'm just really passionate about is trying to understand, you know, some of those big shifts and the ways that we can, you know, join, join God and what he is doing and understand some of the things that are, um, are unique about our, our current context. Yes. So good. And I've, I've had uh, already a handful of people on the show I, earlier, maybe about six months ago, I did kind of a series on, on looking at a bunch of things we're doing in church, what's working and what's not. Uh, I'm a kid's pastor. And we're in a young church plant. We're like three years old. Uh, our pastors are like my best friends. They're my age. So we're all our, our, our lead pastors, our worship pastors and, and us as kids pastors are all like mid 30s. But we've got folks older and younger in our leadership core. And the age of the congregation is is everything from newborns to uh, 80 year olds. But it's like we've got this chance to kind of be like, okay, what are we doing? And and so many of our people are a mixture of recently saved or been in church so long that they've seen all the BS and just want Jesus that we have this really amazing mixture of people kind of who are hungry, who are intentional, who are, let me even say, honest. And so as I reached out to a few different thinkers and and influences in the last year on this on this show you know i had people coming on saying things like you know we know discipleship's a challenge but that's really our only hope because we've got to grow actual people who love jesus okay that's great what does that look like in a in a pluralistic multicultural society okay what does it look like in canada what does that look like in the united states um what has that already been looking like in europe for the last 10 20 years uh, you know, okay, so church is, church is, is family. Church is a safe place to belong. Okay, that's great. But is it also a place to become and to, to grow? Uh, so we've had a, a bunch of this kind of dialogue already uh, here in this, in this context. And the, so, so for those of you who, who don't really yet have a full frame of, of what the book is that, that David's just put out. Uh, it's called Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. And and they lay out from the research five sort of key tools, methods, approaches to building resilient faith in the current cultural climate. And I was amazed at how I don't know what the, even the right word is, how true, how accurate, how much they resonated with me, each of mm. these keys. It was like the movement from sitting in the boardroom going, yes, society is going to hell. Okay, what's next? To actually be like, check, 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 check. This feels like my life, mm. but summed up. And backed with research, and so it's it's scratching my my nerd brain so well. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you have one too. <laughs> okay, so here's what I want to here's what I want to say first of all, or, or or bring up first of all. I I have a like my my faith in in Christ is is everything to me. It informs every part of my life, and I'm also like a really optimistic, naturally positive person. And so I've generally just assumed that everybody thinks like me. Or that all the other Christians, or all the other people who profess to be Christians, the same factors drive their life. And so as I have looked my whole life at people in church, I've scratched my head. going, Why are you doing that? Why are you living that way? Mm. If you profess Jesus to be your, your Lord, this doesn't make sense to me. And I've lived most of my life not being able to compute the reality of people's Christian of people's life with the fact that they claim to be believers. And I don't want to make this, I don't want to get really on a political bandwagon here, but especially as I've looked in the last five years at the United States, this professedly Christian place, and I've had to go, what on earth is happening? E- either God is not who I thought God was, or the Christians are not who I thought they were, or something. And you pointed out this statistic uh, early on uh, that I'm trying to find, but I'm not going to find it. So I'm basically going to paraphrase it, and then you're going to correct me. (laughs) That was pretty much like, of all the people roughly around my demographic, 
who uh, I said they grew up as Christian, 10% of them today would fit your definition of someone who actually has a real resilient faith. Right, right. And that's terrifying enough. But what freaks me out even more is that fully 40% of those people would say they go to church, but they don't fit the Venn diagram over on this side of also actually having a real informative, resilient faith. Yeah, that's the right percent. So if check, check, right? That's a good job. Um, and it's one in 10 people in the United States, 18 to 29, uh, who grew up Christian, who are resilient disciples. Uh, a majority of them are what we call prodigals or nomads. Uh, prodigals being those that say they're no longer Christian um, or they're not a Christian today, but they seem to have had, based on their own report, uh, some Christian church experience growing up. And then nomads are the biggest group in uh, in virtually every society. Um, and I'll, I'm going to try to look up here for you, the Canadian stats in just a minute, because we've just done a big study on that uh, to compare it. But it's um, you know, the nomads are those that say, say they're Christian, but they're not really very active in church. I think that gets actually to your partly to your point. Um, uh, where you've got a lot of people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really doing much different in my, in my way of life, not even attending church, much less other kinds of, of, you know, whole life changes that might, that might follow on from, from being a Christian. Uh, and then habitual churchgoers are a, a third group that are active in church and, you know, they, they love Jesus. They love the church. They're active in church. Uh, but they lack just a few qualifications. Again, our, our, the sort of the bar we put up for resilient disciples was merely that they are active and involved in a church. But, um, and that was a pretty broad description. So, you know, it would have, it would have also worked for a house church or some other kind of Christian community. Um, <clears throat> and then that they believe that the Bible is, is, um, uh, has meaning, has, has, has meaningful answers to, to life's questions. Uh, something like that. And then uh, they believe in an orthodox view of Jesus that he has, was died and resurrected. And importantly, that they want their faith to be expressed out in the world, that they, they believe that Jesus is alive and active in the world. And they want to join him in um, in that world. So those are our definitions of a resilient disciple. Ten percent um, of Christian young Christians in the United States meet that definition. And again, part of our real goal was to create um, a way of understanding um how how to you know what could we learn from the 10 percent who are the most resilient so in canada uh it's nine percent who are um resilient disciples compared to 10 percent 22 percent are habitual churchgoers uh, that compares to 38 percent uh, in the u.s so there's actually a smaller percentage of habitual churchgoers so one way to think about that is among those who are churchgoers in canada there's a higher level of resilience uh, the level of um, uh, nomads is actually higher, uh, 47% in Canada versus 30% in the United States, and then 22% uh, are prodigals, and that's the same across both U.S. and Canada. And I know you have listeners in other you know places as well. We did a big study in, a, in with World Vision called the Connected Generation, and um, we're we're we just released that study. We'll be releasing portions of that study over the next year, and you can find more about that at theconnectedgeneration.com. But um, part of what was so interesting in doing a global study, we did it actually after the Faith for Exiles book was done, so we couldn't include any of that in the book. Um, but you know, there's real differences in in you know context between Australia, New Zealand, let's say, and the UK and Canada. You know, the US still is is a more Christianized context, but is more quickly becoming a post-Christian context, like Canada would be. Um, although Canada is, you know, closer to the U.S. than it is to, you know, New Zealand, for example. So it's really interesting to see the differences between that. And I think, you know, beneath what you're asking is um, how do we sort of reconcile as as people who who want to want to see Jesus uh, change our lives and those around us? you know, our societies, our communities, you know, to, to what effect is the witness of the church today? Um, and it is heartbreaking. I mean, I have the holy slash unholy pleasure of looking at data, you know, day in and day out from a wide range of, of places and contexts and, and people, the majority of the individuals we've interviewed, I think we've interviewed, I don't know, close to a million and a half people in the 25 years that I've, I've been here. And most of those people have been self-identified Christians. And yet, you know, the, the, the depth of discipleship, the depth of culture change is, is, 
is not what it should be. And it's, it's, and when you talk about the United States the last four years, I mean, I'm, I'm heartbroken, uh, around, um, you know, the, the role of the church and, and what, what it, it seems to have become, uh, in our political environment. Um, and, you know, there's an interesting, lots and lots to say about all that, but, but, you know, it says without a vision, the people perish, the scriptures say, and I, I feel like we're lacking a vision of what it means to, 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 to live authentic, full Christian lives in this emerging, what I call digital Babylon, this new digital context. And, um, so, so yeah, I think, um, this book and, and the efforts of our company are, are, are doing our very best to, tr- to try to narrate, okay, what the, could this look like? And let's be honest with ourselves about the, the place that the church, pl- you know, the place of the church today. And sometimes it's lack of, of transformational, um, you know, like why is it not making the difference that we all hope it could, despite yes. the many millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, the, the tens of millions of people, the, the real estate holdings and, you know, related agencies. I mean, like there's this verse that says, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have uh, many spiritual fathers um, or mothers, we could say. And I think that's part of the challenge is like we've, we've embraced a, a mass production approach. Like let's try to build a, a an, infra, you know, sort of Christian infrastructure and we'll just let the rest you know, work itself out. That just doesn't work that way. No. And um, so I think that's a, a call for us to, to, to rethink the hows and the whys uh, and to, to, to sort of think again about what, what might make the sort of difference that we all hope the church could have in our society. Yes, yes, exactly. To, to your, you, you brought this up earlier about, about, you know, oh, how dare you ask non-Christians uh, what they think about us. And, you know, you just touched kind of, you brought that back just now regarding, what the church is is doing and and how we're seen in the world it reminds me if if you don't know that there was a time when christians were thought well of then that's that's something that you don't know but uh, there's there's this i don't have it in front of me but there's an amazing quote from emperor julian who's like a early post uh, spread of the early church emperor of rome who's writing to one of the Roman religious authorities, basically saying, these bloody Christians don't just take care of their own poor, they take care of our poor as well. They're making us look bad by how well they take care of all the poor. Can you figure out how to get the other pagan priests to do some kind of food drive or something so that we don't look so bad? Uh... You know the the emperor of a nation, <laughs> and and it cracks me up because it's kind of like yeah okay do do we today have the best reputation on earth for caring for the poor the fatherless the orphan what uh, scripture says is you know true religion uh, right and in some circles maybe we do and in some circles maybe we don't and obviously like you alluded to there are those whose eyes are simply blind and who are angry and bitter and can't see it you know I had a discussion with a Catholic priest earlier and he was saying you know for all the for all the terrible things that the catholic church has done look at every war-torn area look at every border crisis look at every health crisis around the world and you'll find the catholic church there on their hands and knees serving and i was like well yeah that's that's very true but we we do get blinded to these realities so so it's not all bad but i think again like you said by by highlighting the reality by being honest it actually can give us hope because when when i was when you suddenly put me into a a box that said, actually, Jonathan, you were part of the 10%. And that's actually a, a passionate minority. Suddenly I was able to go, oh, okay. Well, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. So now I know one thing. Great. Now what, what am I going to do if, if actually all these other folks are probably doing the best they know how? but have missed some important element, some aspect of the revelation of the character of God or whatever that hasn't been thus compelling to them in a way that it was compelling to me, fine, no problem. Now I can get to work. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like um, you know, hearing you talk and, and hearing you know, your, your, your work in the church, more about your story, working in, in, in ministry with young people and children, and um, like, like the 
optimism of your, you know, let's try to work to do the things that God's calling us to do despite the headwinds. And, um, and, and that's actually a whole separate discussion of, you know, how do we stay ourselves resilient in our own leadership and life? And, you know, like I've had super, super significant challenges with our, our business and, and embezzlement and cancer in our family and, you know, challenges with my children. I mean, like there's so many things that, and that's just, that's, you know, that's just a short run of the challenges, not just, not to the, the low grade issues and challenges that anyone deals with. Um, um, and, and then not to, not to, not to mention all the challenges of just sort of staying, um, optimistic and not, uh, cynical about the data that I see every day, you know, for 25 years, it's like, you just sort of get beat down, right? Like, how do you stay resilient to that? And so, um, I was, um, listening to a podcast with Brene Brown recently, and she had this really interesting, maybe she's talked about in other places, but I heard it on this podcast and she, she said, you know, one of the interesting things in social psychology has been this question, do you believe that people are doing the very best they can every day? And, um, and you know, the, how much the, a person's answer to that question um, determines so much about their, their just their, their out, out, outlook in, in life. And, um, you know, there are days that I'm absolutely a yes. And there are days where I'm absolutely a no, to be honest, right? Like there's, there's days where I'm like, I don't think I'm doing my very best. And I, I know, I know I'm not, but there, you know, and, and, and yeah, anyway, a lot, let's talk about that. But I think that there's, there's something for us as Christians today, um, to, to ask ourselves that question, um, uh, because at the heart of being resilient, um, I think is the sense of sort of taking responsibility for our own crap and d- dealing with our own, to dealing with our own souls. And, um, you know, like I've, recently gone through a life life coaching and some planning for the next this sounds weird but you know like the next 10 years I'm 45 and I've really committed like I don't want to just rely on my skills and gifts and abilities and you know author author status whatever like to me you know and you, you see this in the in the scriptures like Paul says I, I consider that all to be dumb you know to be to be literally a pile of crap um, but like how can I keep pressing into what the Lord has and, and so, um, I'm committed to that at least this, you know, right now. And I'm, I'm articulating that and there's days, you know, cause my, my wife is the one that's had the cancer, you know, there are days where I'm pretty discouraged about, about, you know, her prognosis or the things that we have to face up to or whatever. Um, you know, and, and there are days where I, you know, sort of, you sort of daydream about sipping, you know, drinks on a beach in Hawaii or something instead of doing the hard work. And, and those days aren't bad and they should come when they come, but um, you know, this sort of daydream about what will we do? So I, this, I think this is a question we all should ask ourselves as Christians. Like, do we think that in the end people are doing the very best that they can do each day? And I think that the, the scriptures tell us it is actually at both end. They are really probably trying to do the very best they can and that the sins of their, of their generations before are somehow affecting them. You know, like the, there's some socio- sociologists who say the effects of divorce will last 75 years. Um, I was learning from my daughter, who's a student at Cal Berkeley, uh, about epigenetics, which is the sort of the ways that our environments affect us, our even our genetics, and how what a, what a profound way the Lord has created life that it's both genetic and sort of um, uh, inexorable, right? Like there's no you you cannot change your genetics, but it's there's epigenetics, which is like well wait environmental factors you know, defect us. So nurture and nature are both true. So I say all that to say, like, how can we as, as Christians, um, and, you know, I think, I think of myself as a resilient disciple, you know, but there's a lot of days that I'm not, but so how, how do we as Christians commit ourselves to, to, you know, um, this, this thing we really believe that God himself gives us new mercies every day that he gives us, uh, a chance to, um, to join him in, in, uh, in, in his work in the world. And more than any of that, he wants, he wants us. He wants our very hearts and our souls uh, to be intimate with him. I'll take a quick break to give you some news. First of all, I want to thank my Patreon supporters. Everything on this podcast and, and the rest of my writing and, and social media, the videos that I put up on Instagram are all made possible by my Patreon supporters. Thank you so much to all of you who give, no matter how much you give. And if you're not a giver, thank you so much to those who share and comment and just send me messages every Every part of it is an encouragement to me. 
You have no idea how much it means that you would give me your time and that you would listen and that you would open up your heart to hear what I have to share and, and what the, the guests that I have on this show have to say. Uh, my most recent supporters are Shannon and Lawrence and Nicole. And I just have to say, those people happen to be folks I have known for almost my entire life. And it is a very special kind of gift when someone who you've known since you were like seven or eight years old says, I love what you're doing with your life and I want to chip in. So uh, I just had to give that shout out. That's really special to me. Hey, if you have been watching my Instagram videos, I put up a video just yesterday all about how to lead your inner critic to Jesus. Many of us have that uh, critical inner voice that runs us down, makes us feel small. It's actually a self-protection mechanism. And like we're talking about here with David, you can actually apply that you were only doing the best thing you could uh, lens that Brene Brown talks about to your inner critic. And when you acknowledge it and thank it and appreciate it, you can win its trust and lead it to Jesus and show it how Jesus only is ever gentle with his protection. And he doesn't bring us shame or condemnation while he protects us. So I recorded a video all about how to lead your inner critic to Jesus. You can go find that on IGTV or on my YouTube and you'll also hear me talk about my devotional that's coming out in the next few months, all about how to learn to love yourself the way God loves you. If you want to jump on the email list for that devotional, go to jonathanpuddle.com slash D-E-V-O, Devo, and then uh, you can stay in the loop. It'll be coming out in the next little while. You will hear lots more about that here as it comes out, but uh, I want you to not miss out. So anyway, back to the show. Um, and that even those who are just habitual churchgoers or who are nomads or who are prodigals who've left the faith are actually doing the very best they can given their own intellectual mix. Like, you know, so for some people, there's a massive intellectual challenge to believe in Christianity. And I, you know, I don't agree with them, but I understand it. And I, and I, they're, I think doing the very best they can with what they have been given. I, I don't think that gets them off the hook. Uh, but I think that that's something that we can, you know, understand like so so i think this this idea of um you know believing the very best about people and also understanding their fundamental brokenness and our own uh is part of what what drives me and what i think is is an important part for you know for us ex expressing this kind of resilience today yeah thank you for sharing that that's that's i really appreciate your your openness and yeah of and, course i listened i don't know if it was the same one but her interview with russell brand was yeah that just was incredible astounding interview incredible. and russell is such a great interview he is <laughs> he, he is he is one of my major bucket list people that i would love to have on this show russell brand you're invited to the podcast <laughs> what a fascinating individual so you brought up intimacy and that that connection with jesus which uh which is a great segue to, to the first, I don't want to give away your whole book here, so we're not going to do that, but maybe we can dig into one or two of these practices that, that your research has identified are making the difference. Um, and, and practice one in, in your writing, I'm going, to, I'm going to sum it up, but then I'd love to hear you explain that in detail. To form a resilient identity, experience intimacy with Jesus. Uh, unpack that one a little bit. Well, I think that's the 25-year journey that I've been on, and maybe even longer uh, prior to joining the research company here, Barna. Just this this sense, just as you articulated, of you know seeing so many believers and Christians and uh, and and the data interviewing. You know, I'd never really thought about it before just now, uh, a few minutes ago, when I said that you know the majority of the million and a half interviews that we've done are people who say, "Yeah, I consider me a Jesus follower," and yet, or a Christian at the very least. And, um, and yet there is so much lacking in their, in their demonstrated, you know, joy in the Lord and love for scripture and love for Jesus and his ways. And, um, you know, we, the, the metaphor of the par the parable, the, the parable, I should say, of the sower has been something that's uh, driven me for a long time. It's, I think one of, one of my favorite parables that Jesus tells of the different kind of seeds and um, so I think I've been I've been on a lifelong quest to understand why do certain seeds fall deeper and grow, grow deeper into the soil and why does other why do other seeds not? Um, and so I think that's part of it is this this whole first chapter, which gets a little technical around the idea of an inoculating uh, inoculating people to the gospel that you give them just enough Jesus to be bored but not enough Jesus to be transformed. 
you know, that they, that we sell a brand Jesus experience to people, um, where it's just the same as going to any, um, you know, we, we, we say words that, well, it's more than anything else. It's your deepest identity, your center of who you are. But in the end, we've packaged Christianity in a manner that in our modern world, it becomes very much a consumer choice that, you know, like I'm, I could be a follower of the Los Angeles Lakers, or I could be a, you know, a devotee to Apple products or whatever, um, that Jesus is just one of those, it's a divine commodity, as my friend Sky Jathani puts it. So I'm concerned that, at least in the West, um, our our consumer-oriented, I choose what I do, I choose who I affiliate, affiliate with, I get a choice to do things, um, you know, that we create a brand Jesus problem. And that that's part of the reason why there are so many people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not actually really much different than any, anyone else. Um, you know, we've got a kind of a fixation on decisionism that people must make a commitment to Christ and then their lives will be changed. And, um, I'm all for, you know, people making choices to follow Jesus, but is, is it, you know, are we giving people almost like a, a little inoculating shot of, yeah, yeah, you're Jesus, you're good. We wanted you to get saved so that you could, your soul rest in heaven, not in hell. But, you know, like the deal we cut with you after that is sort of like, you just come, you just, you know, just show up when you want, you know? Mm. And uh, so I think that, that um, what we found in the research was there was a real difference um, in, uh, in people's, the resilient disciples, those 10%, um, 9% in Canada, 10% in the U S their, um, their way, way of talking about Jesus and their, their sort of practice of speaking to and with Jesus and a sense that Jesus defines their very deepest identity. Um, it, it was actually interesting too, because when I worked on a book called you lost me years ago, but it came about eight years ago. Uh, one of my early readers, right before I released the book, thankfully, because I got a chance to edit just a little bit about it. But he's like, he's like, you know, you're talking a lot about the church in people's faith journeys, but like, there's almost no words in the whole book about Jesus. And I was like, wow, that's true. And so I, I did a little bit of a double click before the, that book was published. Um, and, you know, Jesus was sort of getting lost in the data stream in that project. And then um, in this book, we, we really tried to set about correcting that was, OK, let's see what degree those resilient disciples have a different way of speaking about their relationship to Jesus. And it was true. They, they like literally believe Jesus himself is speaking, is alive and active in the world. And so they have a very different way of talking about Jesus than just those who said, yeah, I bought the T-shirt. I've made a decision. I'm all good in terms of my my soul's final resting place. But their level of discussion around Jesus is very different. Yeah, I, I was actually kind of like flabbergasted to read some of these stats. And I know when I make comments like that, it probably makes me sound like I'm really, I don't know, like I think I'm so amazing. And I don't. Uh, but whatever, you can deal with that. If but you, but you, just, you, you just use the word flabbergasted, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, okay, here, here's, here's a bunch of the statements that, that they used in their research. Worship is a lifestyle, not just an event. How much do you agree or disagree with this statement? Jesus has deeply transformed my life. Reading the Bible makes me feel closer to God. Jesus understands what my life is like these days. I regularly experience at church the reality of God's presence. Or I regularly experience at church guidance for how to grow the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, I'm re-energized when I spend time with Jesus. Jesus speaks to me in a way that's relevant to my life. So like every one of these, I'm like, yep, 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 sure, sure, sure. Like, shouldn't, wouldn't we all be saying this? And the stats for resilient disciples that you point out are really, really high. You know, most of those, well, the minimum one is like 64% and the rest are like high 80s or 90s. But you've got this massive segment of people, these habitual churchgoers, larger larger in the States than in Canada. Interesting that you pointed that out because that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I think in Canada, people tapped out much earlier. It's like, mm-hmm. or, or already, it's like, well, listen, if I'm not going to be all in on Jesus, what's the point in turning up on a Sunday? You mean I could sleep in on a Sunday? Done. <laughs> but, but, but you've got 50, 45 percent, you know, people saying, well, I guess, I guess Jesus informs my life. Like, I guess, I guess maybe some of the time 
uh, I'm energized to be a well, Jesus. Remember, this is that whole um, thing that that those, as you said, those are habitual churchgoers who we didn't we didn't tell anybody in the survey like, hey, you're going to meet a category of habitual churchgoer or as a Christian or whatever. So be sure you answer correctly. But at some point in the survey, they did say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I go to church with some regularity. And so the lack of consistency, and and we still see this, although it is a fading reality, what we call the halo effect, that people try to present themselves as more spiritual, more Christian, more religious. So despite all of that, and by the way, halo effect affects people who are kind of culturally Christian more than it would affect those who are more devoutly Christian. Or <laughs> who don't <really>. care. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is, by the way, a whole separate side note, which is I feel like this is one long series of tangents by me, but that's all right. Um, you could title the webcast Tangents by David Kinnaman. Um, <laughs> you know, the um, the idea that people we, we've seen this interesting dynamic in research where the more spiritually robust a person is, sometimes the less they rate their own spiritual vitality as high. Wow. So, you know, it's like a weird Inverse halo. Yeah, exactly. So there, there is a sense in which they're like, well, I'm not really all that great. I mean, you know, you get people ranking uh, their humility, for example, and it's like, you know, it's very ironic when they say I'm excellent at humility. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it's I think it's really the gap there. And then you've got these nomads, again, another big group of people who say that they are they are Christians, that they that they love Jesus, but not necessarily the church. That gap, as you're pointing out, is really large. It's really significant, and it makes a huge difference to, you know, the witness of the church. And I think the frustration level, the disillusionment that those of us who say, "Come on, isn't there more to being a Christian today?" Um, that I think is some some of what undergirds the the disillusionment and frustration that some of us sometimes feel towards those other Christians who aren't all in. Yeah, but I, but again, to me, and and I'm sure some people just feel like ah, whatever. But to me, it was hopeful. To me, it was helpful to to have a label, to have an identifiable situation, to be able to simply go, okay, gotcha, all right. I don't need to be bent out of shape that that person is whatever, because actually I can see they're not. So fine, let's let's give them well, what they need. This is I, I quoted this earlier that you know without a vision people perish. Um, this is to me that what what gives me hope that those. 60, 70% of Christians who are not resilient disciples, but who still are say that, say that they're Christian, um, that they just don't actually have a vision for how to live that way. You know, that, that, so it's weird. So, you know, let me put it this way. Like, how does David Kahneman feel about the four groups? So, you know, prodigals, I actually respect the heck out of people who say, you know what, I, I don't believe this. I, I've left the faith. I grew up Christian or I, I just was never really saved, whatever. Like, I don't agree with them, but I understand it. Um, I think there's some really smart people who are who are ex Christians. I can respect their intellectual honesty to say, you know what, I'm out. I'm just not going to. It's easier for me to 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 resolve the cognitive dissonance about my metaphysical questions or my whatever questions by saying no. Um, and 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 so then nomads are among the most frustrating because you say, well, you know, you can see there's a spirituality of their life, but they're lacking any real practice of faith. Um, faith is way down on their list of priorities. They're frustrating to me, but the most frustrating group are those habitual churchgoers. Um, and, and here's the thing though, that we as church leaders are often complicit with those individuals because we're like, well, we don't really like the fact that you're, you know, just a habitual churchgoer and you haven't really bought into all these other pieces of what it means to be resilient, but we're happy to have you here every weekend. And, and if you don't mind, you know, don't money. And so we're, we're somewhat complicit with, with their, um, with their habitualness. And by the way, I think habitual can be a real cool thing. Like we should not underestimate the power of habits and the power of habitual church going. And, you know, that, that, you know, again, those people are still doing the very best they can. I really fundamentally believe that's true. Uh, but we, they have not been shown a better way. And that's where I think we have this great responsibility as Christian leaders uh, to show, to model, to express uh, our our um, our hope and our desire for them to be as engaged as they as they should be. Right. Like here is the way and here is what it means for us to n- not settle for second best. Yeah. Uh, so those are those are some of the things that drive me as as we were like okay well how can we 
improve the model, the structures by which we don't just retain people so that we have a bigger mailing list or database or our churches are larger, but that we actually have a different kind of, you know, powerful movement uh, to, to change the change the world. Yes. And if you are pastor, if you're in, in church leadership or ministry leadership and you're 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 looking to lead young people, honestly, please go do yourself a favor and get get David's and Mark's book, Faith for Exiles. I, I, I mean that in all seriousness, I will be sending this interview to a lot of people that I care about who are in ministry because it's really tangible. You know, you know, practice number one is all about experiencing Jesus, which shouldn't really come as a, as a huge surprise to any of us. You know, practice number two gets into cultural discernment, which uh, is a fascinating discussion. Practice three, you know, is all to do with relationships, the richness of meaningful intergenerational intergenerational relationships. And so I, I guess that would be my next question for you. Did the almost the simplicity or the obviousness of some of these things surprise you? Like, to me, they seem like, of course, these are what we should be working on. They did. And I actually think that's part of the reason. So I said this earlier, uh, part of the reason I, I couldn't write this book at the very beginning of the journey, you know, so uh, I had this idea of working on a book of, of like how 20 somethings were going to change the church. And uh, this is back in, you know, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. And, um, and, and when I started working on that, I actually renamed a portion of that called faith at last. I want to understand like what, what makes faith prevail and um, and so then I, my friend Gabe Lyons asked me to work on the book on Christians. So that I was like, well, that's going to be about young people. So sure, I'll work on that book. And it turned, you know, it turned out to be a, a bestseller and a really fun project to work on. Uh, but I knew it was a lot about the bad news. It's like, you know, we've got eight, six chapters on, on like it's like all of Christianity's worst, you know, worst behaviors. <laughs> And, um, and that's your breakout book. Right. And, uh, and so that was number one. And then, and then you lost me was meant to be faith at last. That was the original working title, but I felt like I couldn't write the book because I, it's harder to talk about the things that work than it is the ways that things break down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, to, you, you can't engineer faith. And so how, how dare I try to study, you know, what is the underlying factors that make it work. So we have these five. So, you know, years later, I feel like we've come back to having studied this for more than a decade. Here are five themes in our research through more than a decade's worth of work. And I'm super concentrated to look at it over the last three years that that seem to hold together in the lives of the most resilient people. And there might be six or seven or eight factors. We just didn't look at them. Um, but the simplicity of those things shouldn't um, you know, I, we, we talked a lot, my, my co-author and I, Mark Matlock, uh, about the sort of reaction that a person could have to the book was like, well, duh, you know, I mean, you guys had to spend, you know, three years doing this and, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars to research it. And, and there is a sense in which these are pretty self-evident, but I think the way we've described, um, you know, these five areas, there is these important twists and, and that it's much harder for example, to, to anchor on an, an identity in Jesus. It's much harder to develop these sort of relationships intergenerationally. It's much harder to vocationally disciple someone into their career calling, but there is a path to do it. And uh, so I feel like there's, you know, one of the most helpful, you know, some, it's one of the cool things about being an author is like putting out a book and then hearing how people are responding to it. And one person who, who looked at it in the last couple of months said, you know, this is, um, these are really uh, much harder practices than you would give them like first blush. You kind of look at the words and you're like, okay, well, got it, got it. As I've dug into it, like these are actually more complicated than that. You know, like there's a whole, a whole, it's almost like an operating system upgrade. Like you go from a, you know, a desktop computer to a mobile or what, whatever, whatever the metaphor might be. Um, and by the way, that's part of the premise of the, the digital Babylon idea is that we're doing what I call dial up ministry in a, in a Wi-Fi world. Yeah. So if we don't re if we don't re-anchor on this, these fundamental core practices and do them in a different f- fundamentally, you know, lasting way, then, then we won't make a difference. It's, it will just be competing on the level of entertainment, uh, which, which the church will always lose at. Um, so those are some of the, you know, some of my thoughts about, you know, the, 
the simplicity of these practices um, sometimes belie their actual putting them into practice. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. But you've contextualized them really well in each section, and and I think I think it will be really helpful for other generations to read this and and perhaps even understand. Oh, this is the challenge. This is why it's so difficult for young people today. I mean, I remember one of my mentors in the faith, you know, who's in his seventies now, saying to a bunch of us one day, "You know what?" When I was your guy's age, looking at porn meant going to a store and buying a magazine and like outing yourself. But he's like, what what you're facing is like hiding it somewhere in your room or whatever, exactly. right? You know, he's like, yes, it's it's eternally true that we should not be objectifying women, that we should not be reprogramming our minds with love, all this kind of stuff, right? We we know porn is bad. But the unique challenge of it for my generation and my even my children is different than it was. And so that I think as an example, I think that's a, you you've contextualized the struggle well within each each section. I know we're out of time here. David, I wonder uh would you be willing to pray for us as yeah. we seek to maintain our resilience and as as people in ministry as we ask the hard questions of how do we do the work? Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you for asking me to close that way. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we're um, we're coming to you uh, with open hearts. Uh, first, I just thank you for uh, for Jonathan and for his uh, heart to serve leaders and those with questions and those who think they have answers. And Lord, we we um, we ask you to join us um, in in leaning into what it is you want your Spirit to say to us. Uh, Lord, there's this great. Um, reminder of how we should respond to your voice uh, in First Samuel, where it says we should we should respond. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And Lord, uh, across listeners today, wherever you may be, um, commuting or in your home or listening at this a one and a half speed, whatever it may be, Lord, we know we know that people will be uh, hearing these words, this prayer. And so um, I'm asking each of of us. Uh, to say in the way that might seem best to you, um, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And we ask you, Lord, as we say that, that um, you would join us, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would help to open up the places where we become cynical. Um, For me, it's this vantage point of hundreds of thousands of interviews um, uh, over the course of you know many years, um, every, every every week new new interviews coming in, new data. Lord, help me not to become cynical as I see uh, how people think and see and perceive the world, especially my fellow believers and Christians. Lord, I, I really want to um, live into this truth that we talked about earlier. That that I believe that people are doing the very best they can each day. Uh, but they're struggling with a lack of vision uh, to what that might be. And so I ask you, Lord, for our listeners, for, for our company, for, uh, for the churches we lead, for the families that we are part of, that you would give us the vision uh, to, to, uh, to help live into this resilience that you ask of us and that you would give us the courage, Lord, to do the very best we can, uh, to be driven by your spirit and to pursue these things that really matter uh, in time and over time. Uh, Lord, we ask you for that, Lord. We're, 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 we're begging you, Lord, for those kinds of insights in our lives, not just little like tips or, you know, hacks, but, but a, a daily reality of your presence in our lives to be, to be led by you so that we can lead others effectively. Uh, Lord, we love you and we thank you for your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, David. I really like that aspect of what he was sharing about modeling a compelling vision of what it means to follow Jesus. Because on the one hand, I think we've had vision just like rammed down our throats. Many of us who've been in church for a long time, oh, this is the new vision. But also, uh, when push comes to shove, the actual modeling of character of what it means to be a follower of Jesus has been, in many cases, terrible. Thankfully, I, I personally in my life, I've, I've been impacted by so many wonderful characters, which I, which I would attribute to that's why I have a resilient faith of my own. But I think in the culture, uh, certainly in media, certainly the kind of Christian political world, the character references that are available to us are atrocious. 
So I, I love David's approach that if you're not in that resilient category, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, that doesn't describe me, that's okay. Uh, if you've not been offered a compelling vision of what it means to follow Jesus, that's on us, not you. But don't, don't stay where you are. Keep searching out the truth. Keep hungering for more. Do it honestly, and God will meet you there. So thank you, David. Uh, make sure you check the show notes. You can go grab, uh, grab a copy of David and Mark's book, Faith for Exiles. It's excellent. I really, really enjoyed it. It's full of uh, good insight and, and intelligence on what's happening, but also it's, it's heartfelt, it's passionate, and I, it moved me emotionally, which I wasn't exactly expecting. But hey, you guys know me. I'm moved emotionally by everything, so maybe I should have expected it. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Uh, share this with your friend or your pastor, and have a wonderful day.